All right, we are uh, taking a little bit of a break here from the book of Colossians because I got something on my heart that I, I want to share. And, and so we're in a kind of a series now, but it's a sort of choppy series because uh, we started two weeks ago, and then last week we took a break from that to do the Q&A, which is a blast, by the way. You guys ask great questions. Uh, I just love that way of, of uh, just dispensing information and stuff. But uh, so then we took a break, but now we're back and we're going to talk about faith and doubt. That's what this series is about. The next week, uh, we'll take another break from it because I'm going to be out in uh, Grand Rapids at Mars Hills Church, Mars Hill Church, whatever it's called. And uh, Steve Weens is going to be here. And if you were here last time Steve Weens was here from Open Door, uh, you know that he is just excellent and uh, incredible, insightful, funny speaker. And, and uh, really encourage you to come and be a part of that. And we, we're kind of trying to forge a, a deeper relationship with Open Door and a couple other uh, church bodies. Um, so, th- but then the week after that, I'll come and I'll finish up this message, uh, this series on faith and doubt. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. But, uh, so that's how this thing's going to kind of go down. Uh, what, what, what's behind this whole series is just this. Um, I have had, oh, growing over the last decade and a half or so, <clears throat> just kind of, a, I think, a growing awareness about how the, the way many people, maybe even most people, do faith and think about faith and understand faith, it just strikes me as odd. And the more I've looked at this and wrestled with it, the more it struck me as, as unbiblical. Um, the way that most people seem to think about faith is that faith, your faith is as strong as... Uh, you are certain. Your faith is as strong as you are doubt-free. And so we say of a person who just you know, maybe says, you know, I have such a strong faith in the Bible because I never doubt it. Well, they really, you know, that's sort of the goal. They're, they're, they're certain. They don't have any, any questions about it. And that's seen as being a strong faith. So then you have a culture of people who try to be certain about things. And that has struck me as odd. Just odd. How do you try to be certain about something? How do you just try to believe something? I, I, that strikes me as odd. If I, if I told you, if I suppose I said, you know what, if you can, if just, maybe I could have a little contraption I could put on your brain to measure this. If you can make yourself absolutely certain that there's a leprechaun right here, I'll give you a million dollars. Could you do that? Yeah. Probably not. Well, maybe some could. <laughs> I'll take you up on that offer. Well, I forgot my machine at home to, to measure it. Uh, how do I know that you're really certain? But, uh, you know, the, the thing is, is that... Maybe some people could, but they would tend to be folks who are more inclined to, to delusion and, and, and things like that. But see, that, that, uh, that is the kind of model of faith that many people have. We're going to try to believe this. I do, I do, I do believe. The, wizard, the line on the Wizard of Oz type sort of faith. I do, I do, I do believe. And, and so I've been looking into this and, and wrestling with it. And then um, I've shared a little bit of this about a year ago. And, and a publisher heard it and wanted me to do a, a little book on this, which is a growing book at this point. But uh, it has to be done by September 1st, and I'm way behind. <laughs> Pray for me. Uh, but I'm just kind of sharing a little bit out of, uh, of that. That's what's been a passion of mine since I've been so immersed in this book. So la- last week, I, I talked about, well, I'm calling this a strength tester model of faith. Strength tester model of faith. Because you know, if you go to those carnivals or the fair, the state fair uh, that's coming up, you'll find these games where you try to measure how strong you are by hitting the ground and, and this platform and trying to hit this puck up to the bell. And the farther up the, the pole you can hit the puck, um, the, the, the stronger you are. 
And that's sort of like how a lot of people, maybe even most people, do faith. Is they think that the, far, the more certain you can make yourself, the stronger your faith is. And so the general assumption is that there's sort of a minimum level of certainty that you need to qualify for salvation and believing the, doc, the doctrines that are pertinent to salvation. And, and so you, if you can get the puck, say, halfway up the pole, and you're pretty much confident that Jesus is Lord and the Trinity or whatever else you're supposed to believe, well, then, then you meet the minimum requirement and you're saved. But if you can get that puck three-quarters up the, the way of the pole, well, then, then, then you're in the blessing zone, and, and maybe you can even do some, some, some miracles. But if you can hit that bell, that certainty bell, be absolutely certain of something, well, then you can ask whatever you want and it will be done. And there are some verses that can be used to uh, support that. And I'll talk about those verses in two weeks. I knew I was, I was going to do it tonight, today, but uh, it got pushed back. So I read some verses two weeks ago, and I'm going to read them again here in a little bit, uh, that kind of mess with people's brains because they seem to be suggesting that. And um, if you've been screwed up the last two weeks because you didn't have the explanation for that, and you came here hoping to get that explanation, I'm just going to ask you to use this as an opportunity to grow in patience uh, because we will get to it in two weeks. Just not, not today. Uh, what I want to do today is, is this. I, I, two weeks ago, I talked about how this model of faith, this strength tester model of faith, uh, tends towards idolatry. Because what is making a person feel okay? What, what a person's okayness is derived not from their, their, their confidence in God, but in their confidence in what they believe about God. Uh, I, I, I believe, you're confident that you believe the right things about God with sufficient strength and, and that's what makes you feel okay and secure. But see, that is idolatry. Anything we go to other than Jesus Christ to get our core needs met is idolatry. And so it tends towards idolatry. What I want to share this morning is I want to give two more uh, uh, problems with this strength tester view. Because it's so prevalent, and I want folks to really be convinced that it's not the biblical way of, of thinking about things. I have four chapters on this in my book, but I'm just giving you a little, a little tip of the iceberg. And then I'm going to share one very, very, very important aspect of the biblical model of faith that contrasts strongly with the strength, uh, uh, strength tester model of faith. Uh, so I'm, we're entitling this message, Honesty, uh, However Ugly. What's the title of this thing? Honesty? Yeah, However Ugly. We'll see why here in a little bit. And just to prime the pump, I want to just read uh, two verses here. The first is from uh, Matthew 27, where Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out in that crucial moment where he's bearing the sin of the world, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you have a strength tester model of faith, where your faith is as strong as you are certain, it looks like Jesus is losing his faith. But Paul says in Romans 14 that whatever is not of faith is sin. So if Jesus is losing his faith, or at least faltering a little bit in his faith, well then it seems like he's sinning. But do you think Jesus sinned on the cross? I doubt it. Which suggests that there's something wrong with that model of faith. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pray with me here for a moment. So Abba Father, as we come to you now and uh, I, to talk about this, this issue, which is so fundamental to who we are, individually and as a people, uh, our faith. Uh, and we have so many assumptions, God, that I think just trip us up and block people from the kingdom and mess with our heads. I pray, God, that you just use this message to set us free to be a people who are just ruthlessly, raw, honest, and, and don't try to fake things and pretend things uh, and talk ourselves into things, but are just real. 
Holy Spirit, just use it. For folks in this auditorium or who are uh, listening through podcasts or television, I just pray, God, that you open up their minds and hearts to receive this. And Holy Spirit, will you just seal this on our hearts? Uh, whatever, whatever we need, whatever, just apply it individually. Set people free to heal wounds, to make us honest in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Okay, <clears throat> two more problems with the strength test of you. One is, is just a very fundamental thing, and that is that the strength tester model of faith is, I, I submit to you, just irrational. It, it's, it's irrational. It, the rational way that people normally decide what is true in fact, it's the only rational way to decide what is true is to check things out, right? If I want to know if something's true, I have to check it out, which means I have to doubt it first and, and wonder about it and, and then consider the evidence and the arguments that support that belief and consider the evidence and the arguments that are against that belief. And then my, the confidence that I'll have that it's true will be proportioned to how strong the evidence and the arguments are. That's how we always go about deciding whether something's true or not. And it's the only way to rationally go about deciding what is true. If you go to buy a car, let's say I go to buy a car from a stranger, a guy I don't know, and he wants $10,000 for this car because he says it's, it's a souped-up Chevy with a four-on-the-floor turbocharged crankshaft or something. I don't know anything about cars. Nothing. Zero. And I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm such an unmanly man. I, I don't even like cars. Uh, motorcycles I, I like even less. But uh, I know that that just disqualifies me from manhood. But uh, suppose, I, so I, I, he, he wants me to buy, you know, put down this money because he has all these claims about this car. Now, I want to know if those claims are true before I put down $10,000. So what I'll do is, is I'll get hire or get a friend who's, who knows something about cars and say, will you come and check this out? And so he'll lift up the hood and he'll look at the, the engine and check out the spark plugs and, and the belt and uh, whatever else is in there. Um, and to make sure that, and you look under it to whatever you see under it. And I don't know what you do, but you'll check it out. And it'll either give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Because I'm invested in the truth. I want to know the truth. And when you want to know the truth, the only way to do that rationally is to check it out. Now, consider the way that many, maybe even most Christians hold to their faith. Uh, the working assumption out there, and I, I'm sure most of us have uh, at one time believed this. Maybe we still believe it. Just hear me out if you do. Um, but the, the assumption is, is that uh, you're saved if you can get the faith puck sufficiently high up the faith pole towards the certainty bell about the important doctrines, the doctrines that pertain to salvation. That's how it's usually phrased. And so if you can become sufficiently certain that Jesus was, was God and, and sufficiently certain about the Trinity and sufficiently certain about maybe the inspiration of the Bible and whatever other doctrines the particular church is claiming are essential to salvation, well, then you're in. But if you can't do that, well, then you're out. And see, that model does not encourage folks to check things out. It doesn't encourage doubting things and exploring things. The goal here is to convince yourself that what you already believe is true. And then we end up like the Lion and the Wizard of Oz saying, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. We're, instead of checking things out in a rational way, we're trying to convince ourselves that, that something or other is true. This is why talking with people who hold this model of faith and, and talking about matters of truth or debating matters of truth can sometimes be an unpleasant experience. Um, you can't rationally talk about truth if uh, the person is 
Their concern is to stay convinced that what they already believe is true. How do you have a rational discussion about any doctrine or any point of view if the person's not really interested in finding out what is true, but they're rather interested in convincing themselves and remaining convinced that what they already believe is true? And they're getting their life from this. So when you start poking around at that, they're going to get angry. And, and I'm sure some of us have had conversations with folks that are like that. It's like, my mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. La, 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 la. And, and so it's like talking to a, a wall, and they just keep on repeating themselves with increasing hostility. It's not the rational way of, of, of uh, holding to, to truths. In fact, think about this. Put on your thinking caps now. I, I submit to you that you can't really be concerned with truth if you're at the same time concerned with, with protecting your certainty that what you already believe is true. Think about this. You can't be concerned that what you believe is true if your concern is to feel certain that what you already believe is true. Think about that. In other words, unless you're willing to doubt your belief, you can't really be concerned that what you believe is true. Now, maybe what you believe is true, but if that's so, you just got lucky that the person who told you what to believe, you know, happens to believe the truth. But if you can't explore things and check it out and doubt things, well, then you can't really be concerned with truth. So the irony is that these folks, and God bless them, and they're, with all sincerity, they're, they claim to be seeking the truth, and they want the truth, and they love the truth. But in fact, what they're seeking, what they want, and what they love is the feeling of certainty that what they believe is the truth. It's not, it's not the rational way of going out. If you really were concerned with the truth, you'd do what you do when you go buy a car. You'd look under the hood and check underneath and explore things and, 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 and doubt some things. And you wouldn't mind it if people... If you're really concerned with the truth, then if somebody has a different point of view or an argument against your view, you wouldn't get defensive. You'd welcome it. I want feedback. I want my view to be subjected to criticism because I want to believe the truth. And so what am I missing? And, and so you, you welcome objections and criticism and, and different points of view. The last thing you do is get defensive. Anytime someone gets defensive about their beliefs because you disagree with them, there's something else going on other than a concern for truth. They're protecting a feeling of certainty and deriving life from it. I encourage us to get all of our life from Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ alone. And see, what that does is if your life is anchored in Jesus Christ, that one belief, that leverage everything on that, then, then that gives you space to be wrong and not feel like the world's coming to an end. It gives you space uh, to explore and to question and to do it without fear. So the first, the first problem here is that it's ir- an irrational way of exploring truth and holding on to truth. Uh, it's, it's not only irrational, but it's not really even concerned with the truth. The second thing that I want to say about the strength tester model of faith is that it presupposes a non-Christ-like picture of God. We always say here that um, the most important question in your life is what is your picture of God? Because your relationship with God is mediated through your mental picture of God. And so what is your picture of God? And so all the, over and over here we, we, we encourage people... Uh, to look to Jesus Christ. The only sure place where we can know what God looks like is in Jesus Christ. The one who says, if you see me, you see the Father. The one who is, Hebrews 1.3 says, the, 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 the exact representation of, the, of God's essence. Uh, he, he's the, the one accurate picture of God. And so we encourage people to anchor your, your, your picture of God on, on Jesus. And any, any theology, any view that presupposes or points to or paints a different picture of God means that there's something off with that view. 
Christ is the criteria by which we should assess everything. And the strength tester model of faith, I submit to you, uh, is, um, it presupposes a view of God that is sub-Christ-like. It's not consistent with the revelation of God in Christ. So I shared last, or two weeks ago about this prayer meeting that I was at uh, for this young man about 20 years ago who was dying of cancer, a husband and, and uh, a father. And uh, we gathered together. And as I reported two weeks ago, uh, just before we we're going to go into prayer, a lady read these passages, which I'll explain in two weeks. She, she said, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Which, if you think about it now, if you take that literally, it's a catch-22 command. That is, it's, it's a command that's impossible to obey if you take it literally. That should already tell you that something's going on here. Think about it. How do you ask while believing that you've already received it? If you really believe that you already receive it, you wouldn't be asking for it. The very fact that you're asking for it shows that you don't really believe that you've already received it. Think about it. It's like me telling you, hey, I want you right now, you must believe me when I tell you that everything I say is a lie. <laughs> See, you can't possibly, if I'm telling the truth, I'm lying. And if I'm not telling the truth, I'm lying. So either way, you can't believe me. It's an impossible command to, to believe. So she read that. And that meant that we were supposed to make ourselves certain. And then she read Matthew 9, which says, According to your faith, be it unto you. And so she says, then, uh, we, according to our faith, it will be done to our friend here. According to our faith. And so we must make ourselves certain. If we can really believe that he's going to be healed, then he will be healed. And immediately we felt all this pressure. <laughs> I mean, this guy's life is in our hands. And, uh, and so we start praying. All of us trained to just believe. Uh, to, to, you know, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. With this guy's life in the balance. And I got a picture of God as I was doing this. I got a picture of God as sort of being up in heaven. And here's God looking down at us and he's saying, here's the deal, folks. If you can make yourself certain that he will be healed, in fact, if you can make yourself certain that he's already healed, even while you asked me to heal him, well, then uh, he will be healed. He'll live. But if any of you doubt, then he's going to die. It's like God is holding, it almost felt like this God is holding this guy hostage. And he's saying, here's the ransom you got to make yourselves certain that he'll live. And then he will live. It's almost like, you know, here's a me- almost like for entertainment, he's saying, here's a mental trick to involve yourselves in. Uh, please me by making yourself certain of this. And in fact, it's a command that we can't make ourselves certain of because to do that, would, would, we, we contradict ourselves. That picture of God is, I submit to you, not consistent with the revelation of God in Christ. I don't see Jesus going around Galilee, trying to get people to talk themselves into things. There's one time where he prays for this guy, and, and, and he's blind, and then he says, well, can you see? And the guy says, well, kind of. There's like tree stumps. I see people like tree stumps. Um, and Jesus doesn't say, well, come on, convince yourself. You've already been healed. Uh, no, he, he says, okay, let's keep on praying. He, he looks for honesty, in other words. He doesn't tell the guy to try to and get involved in some kind of mental gimmick to convince himself that he's already been healed. This picture of God, with all due respect, and I don't mean to be crude here, but, but in all honesty, that picture of God holding this guy hostage, telling us to get involved in this mental gimmick, that looks more like El Capone to me than it does Jesus. Holding this guy captive. You want this guy to live? Well, then you got to do this trick. Make yourself certain. And I have seen, and I know some of you have seen, in fact, some of you have been at the losing end of this, 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 it's a psychologically cruel model. Uh, and and I, I've seen it destroy people. I mean, just rip people apart. 
Because when your loved one dies, then it's either your fault because you didn't have enough faith or it's God's fault because he didn't come through on the promise. And either way, you're left with a lot of messiness. I've known people who, one lady committed suicide because she was blaming herself for what her, her little baby was going through because she couldn't do this mental trick good enough. If you want to know why I'm, I'm so passionate about this, well, there's a lot of, lot of pain in the, in the trail of this belief system. It's a, it's a picture of God that is not consistent with what we learn about God and Jesus Christ, and he's always got to be our criteria. And it's, we're not talking just about a healing service either. In this model of faith, your eternal salvation hangs and you're being able to get that faith puck far enough up the faith pole about the doctrines that are essential to salvation. You've got to believe the right things, not the wrong things. And you've got to believe the right things with, with just the, with a sufficient amount of certainty. Otherwise, you're going to hell. Regardless of where your heart is at, regardless of where your character is at, uh, you go to hell. If you don't believe the right things, if you believe the wrong things, you're out. And if you believe the right things but not with sufficient certainty, well, then you're out. Regardless of where your heart is, regardless of how much you... Uh, are open to God, nope, nope, you're lost. Salvation is a matter of, of, of just getting it right. And so I've read people, I'm sure you've read folks who have said things like, Gandhi is for sure in hell because he believed the wrong things, and Jehovah Witnesses are going to hell because they deny a doctrine that's essential to salvation, the Trinity, and the Mormons, they're going to hell because they got the wrong view of the Trinity, and, and, and you're going to hell if you have the wrong view of, of God's sovereignty or the wrong view of baptism or the wrong... I got a guy who sent me a, a, a video where there's this guy on a cable show who said, I'm going to hell. Because I questioned the, the traditional view of hell as eternal suffering. I did that in a sermon a couple years ago. And, and so he played this clip on a cable show and said, Boy, he's going to hell. And the joke's on him. The hell he didn't believe in, he's going to suffer for all eternity. And you get this picture of God almost as a sort of anal theology professor. And, and, and uh, uh, the whole business of life is to pass a test, a theology test. This is a, a God who, who really loves right opinions, people not so much. And if people have happen the right opinions while well, they're in, but if they have the wrong opinions, then they're out. So what God really loves is not people, but opinions, the right opinions. And the whole job is to pass the theology test. And if you get any of the, the crucial questions wrong, well, then you flunk. And to flunk means you go to hell for all eternity. I don't see Jesus doing that, walking around Galilee, threatening people with hell by giving them a theology quiz and saying, get, get it right. No... It's a picture of God that's not consistent with what we learn about God and Jesus Christ. The biblical, see, the, in the biblical model of faith, beliefs are important. Don't hear me as saying that orthodoxy is not important. I, we should want to believe the right beliefs, and they are important. They have ramifications for everything. I, 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 I believe that passionately. But see, in the biblical model of faith, beliefs are not an end in and of themselves. Beliefs are important because they point to and support a relationship, a relationship with God. They don't stop with themselves. It's like when I got married, and I shared this two weeks ago, I held beliefs about Shelly. I still hold those beliefs uh, 33 years later that she's gorgeous and wonderful and kind and godly and fun, and I love to be around her. And so the beliefs were important. I wouldn't have married her if I didn't have these beliefs, but... The beliefs are important as a means to an end. The end is the relationship. The end is what you do with those beliefs. Beliefs are important, but only if you act on them and commit on the basis of them. And that's when biblical faith starts. Biblical faith starts where belief ends. They're not synonymous. See, so many people think that belief and faith are the same, which is why they think salvation hangs upon the content of your head, the content of beliefs in your head. And that, that, that gets into the theology prof picture of God. No, beliefs are important because they point to a relationship. 
And faith is about committing. It's not about striving for certainty about those beliefs. It's about striving to be faithful regardless of how uncertain you are about those beliefs. Biblical faith is about a commitment to act in the face of uncertainty. And so now I want to share one more aspect of biblical faith. I shared that part of it uh, two weeks ago. And now I want to share another aspect of the biblical model of faith, which is so, so, so vitally important. And yet it's, it's pretty much it's neglected in the strength tester model of faith. Uh, it's this. B- biblical faith, as I said two weeks ago, is a covenantal concept. It's a relational concept. It's a commitment concept. And because it's a relational concept and a commitment concept, it's a concept, the biblical model of faith is, is a concept that puts a premium on raw honesty. And it puts a premium on raw honesty because you can't have a real relationship with God or with other people unless it's premised on and anchored in truth and honesty. Your relationship with God and your relationship with other people, the quality of that relationship will never outrun the depth of your honesty. So God puts a premium. This is the first aspect of biblical faith. It's a premium on honesty. Not trying to talk yourself into something or convince yourself of something or or anything of the sort. It's, it's, It's about being raw, naked before God. So that your relationship with him is completely honest. And you see, you see this throughout the Bible. One of the key passages here that really display this as a foundational aspect of biblical faith is a story that I shared about a year ago. Uh, it's in Genesis 32. It's about Jacob. Jacob is one of the forefathers of the people of God who are called the Israelites. And this is why they're called the Israelites. Jacob is by this river, and all of a sudden this guy shows up and for reasons the narrative doesn't tell us, they start wrestling. And they wrestle all night because Jacob wants a blessing from this guy. And so he's wrestling all night until the guy will bless him. Uh, and then it turns out that this guy is the Lord Almighty in human form. And the Lord touches his hip and, and then he limps the rest of his life to remind him about this wrestling match. And then towards the end of this wrestling match, as morning was coming, uh, the Lord says, what is your name? As though he didn't already know it. And Jacob says, well, my name is Jacob. And then... The man, who is the Lord, says, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with human beings and have overcome. Your name will be Israel. Now, the word Israel means one who strives or contends with. And Jacob contended with God. And remember, in the ancient world, to confer a name on somebody was not just a tag, like it is in Western culture. Uh, Sort of, Greg has nothing to do with my character. I think it's just a tag I respond to. But in the ancient world, a name was to represent your character, a defining characteristic. And so in giving and changing Jacob's name, he's conferring on all of his descendants their defining characteristic. And they will be Israelites, descendants of Israel. Why? Because they will have the audacity to wrestle with God. There'll be a people who, who, who struggle. And every virtue can also be a vice. So some of the way Israel struggled with God and with people was ungodly. But some of it was absolutely praiseworthy. The defining characteristic of God's people is not that they are the ones who make themselves certain and feel secure and all their certainty and they have all the answers and they have their act together. No, the defining characteristic of the people of God is that they're willing to struggle with God, wrestle with God, to get a blessing from God. And that's about being honest 
about pushing back when, when, when your heart says push back. So you find the heroes in the Bible often are people who are willing to have the audacity to push back on God. So Abraham, for example, yeah, you remember the story where he's, uh, God announces to him in, in Genesis 18 that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And we could hear go into a whole set of questions about how our reading of that passage in the light of Christ would uh, teach us something different about how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're not going to go there now. Uh, that's a different message. What's interesting to us is what Abraham does in response to that. So Abraham, when he hears that God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he goes, you can't do that. You can't. There's, a, there's some, Yeah, it's a wicked, wicked city, but there's some innocent people there. You're going to destroy? Will, it, will not the judge of the earth do right? You're going to destroy the innocent with the, 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 the ungodly? And then, then, then he starts this bartering kind of conversation where, where you know, Abraham and God are saying, uh, we spare the city for 50. Uh, if, if you find 50 innocent people, we spare the city. How about 40? Well, give me 40. Uh, how about 30? We'll give me 30, 31, 30, 30, 30, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. And they're just kind of bartering their way down. Here is Abraham, this little human being, pushing back on God, and God doesn't mind it. In fact, God encourages it. This is one of the reasons why Abraham is, is the father of all who believe. He's got an Israelite faith. He doesn't see something. He, something strikes him as a contradiction, and he doesn't just in sort of piously like, oh, mysteries, we just got to let God do ungodly things and not ask any questions. No. If, it's, if the question is there, he doesn't try to suppress doubt and convince himself of something. He's honest with God, and he pushes back. You see the same thing with Moses. God's, God's really frustrated with the Israelites because they're just they're screwing up all over the place. And God finally says, you know what? Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over with you. And again, we could talk about, and some, sometime we will talk about how our reading that passage through the lens of the cross would inform us about how God might have done that if he would have carried through on that and how it wouldn't have been an act of violence on his part. But that's a different kind of issue right now. I, I want to look at how Moses responded to this. Moses says, you can't do that. God, uh, you know, it's almost like Moses wants to be his therapist or something. Slow down, Jehovah. Let's, let's think about this. Let, let's, you know, pull it back a little bit. Uh, you're getting a little carried away. Uh, you know, this is going to think about what this is going to do for your reputation. Uh, think about, you know, this is not, it, it looks like you're breaking promises. And what's amazing is God doesn't get mad and how dare you insult the Almighty with questioning me. No, God, God, God actually changes his mind. He goes, okay, uh, you know what? Um, uh, I see your point. And, uh, and he says, uh, I'm not going to do that now. You find this throughout the Bible. Jeremiah, uh, David, uh, Habakkuk, the, these heroes of the faith, they are willing to just get raw with God and say what's on their heart. They don't try to pretend anything. It's, it's about raw honesty. And God loves that. My favorite hero in this regard is Job. I love Job. I, I, I just love that book. Um, and here again, there's a bunch of questions that we can't get into right now. Uh, uh, surrounding that. But the bottom line is, is that here Job is, and uh, there's a sort of verbal form of spiritual warfare that's going on in the heavenly realms. This random arbitrary conversation or fight between God and Satan, it's a verbal form of spiritual warfare. And, and so God's character gets assailed as being manipulative and Machiavellian and, and all controlling and, and whatever. And, and God's way of running the universe gets challenged. And so God has to be vindicated, and Job gets caught up in all that. So Job ends up losing everything. The question is, will anyone continue to, to, to worship God and follow God, even though there's no benefits in it? That's what, what's at stake here. Now, Job initially starts off sounding so pious. Oh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But he says that same 
motif, that same refrain over and over again throughout the book. And you'll find that as that pain wears on him, he gets more and more raw. He gets, he, uh, sounds more and more vulgar. People think that that statement, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, is, is that they think that that's the, the kind of the point of the book or that that's, a, that's supposed to be a true thing that we're supposed to say yes to. I submit to you that that's part of Job's worldview that this book is written to refute. Both Job and Job's friends actually assume that God is quite a bit like what Satan said he was, this all-controlling deity, this, this manipulative deity. just gives and just takes away. Throughout this book, see, the, the, the friends assume that God is doing it justly, so Job must be sinning, but Job is saying, no, God is not just. He gives, he takes away, but there's no rhyme or reason to it. And so throughout this book, you find Job saying stuff like this. He says, your hands fashioned and made me, but now you turn and destroy me. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But it's not quite so pious now, is it? Bold as a lion, you hunt me down. You repeat your exploits against me. Same philosophy, just different uh, tone. <coughs> Later on, he says, he has shriveled me up. The Almighty has shriveled me up. He has torn me in his wrath. He hates me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary, look at that, my adversary sharpens his eyes against me, gnashes his teeth at me. <laughs> Job here is, is uh, I mean, who is the adversary? It's the one who was accusing God that started this whole thing. And now Job, in his confusion, is accusing God of that. And, and it's still the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But now he's saying it with a rawness about how, how he's experiencing this whole thing. And, and God is, to him, acting like the devil. And he says some nasty, nasty, nasty things about God throughout this, 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 uh, this, this book. At one point he says, From the city of the dying groan and the throat of the wounded cries for help. Yet God pays no attention to their prayer. Now, should we say, you know, that's part of the wonderful teaching of this book? Let's preach on that. You know, God doesn't listen to any prayer. He doesn't even care about the dying out there in the streets. No, this is, how, this is Job's worldview, and the purpose of the book is to refute it. But it, it, it's coming from, from Job's gut. Now, what's interesting is that, that God shows up later on, and, and he's got to set Job straight. For I mean, Job has some screwed up ideas. Um, and, and he was ignorant about a lot of things. Um, his, his talk was, was, was ugly and even close to blasphemous. His friends, on the other hand, they sound so pious, so evangelical. Just they, God's nice and just and always wonderful. But when God shows up, he's not mad at Job. He's mad at the pious-sounding friends. Uh, he has to put Job in his place because Job was ignorant. And so he talks about the complexity of the universe Job, do you know anything about that? And he talks about Leviathan and Behemoth, which were ancient ways of, of conceiving of the devil, conceiving of evil. So he talks about spiritual warfare. It's interesting, and, and the complexity of creation. But he's saying, Job, you're ignorant. But he's not mad at him. Job gets the point because he, he then says, I uttered things I did not understand. And he repents of it. So, so that theology of Job, Job himself repents of it. It was the wrong theology. But God's not mad at Job. He's mad at his friends. So he says to Eliphaz, who's one of the troop leaders of the friends, he says, I am mad. I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, God can't be saying you haven't spoken accurately as my servant Job has because God just corrected his theology and Job just repented of it. And if you just read the book, you'll see that the theology is not one you'd want to endorse, as I just illustrated with that prayer quote. 
The word that is translated right here is the word kun in Hebrew, and it has the connotation of something that lines up. Uh, it can mean accurate, but it's, the core of it means straight, like a plumb line, straight. And what God is saying is, I'm angry with you because you, you guys did not speak straight the way Job did. You find, if you read this book carefully, that, and it's just a brilliant book, you've got to study it very carefully, but uh, the friends had ulterior motives in what they were doing. In chapter 6, for example, uh, Job says to them, you guys are talking out of your fear, out of your distress. And what's going on is that they are afraid that what happened to Job might happen to them. And so they want to, be, they want to make themselves certain that what they believe about God and the universe is true. They believe that everybody gets punished uh, for, for their sin, and, and so you know, the, those who are blessed are favored by God, and those who are not aren't, aren't blessed by God. And they're hanging on to that, because that, that means that if they, can, if they can just believe the right things and be sufficiently certain, well, then, then they're going to be safe, and they won't be like Job. So they protect their theology, they protect their certainty, and they indict Job in the process. Almost always when we protect our certainty, we indict others. God's mad at them for that. They sounded so pious, sounded so flowery, sounded so evangelical, and God is mad because it wasn't honest. Job sounded close to blasphemous, angry, vulgar, says nasty stuff. And God has to correct that for sure, but God loves honesty. Job spoke from the gut. God's not offended by that. God doesn't get angry at that. God applauds, applauds, applauds that. That's the essence of a biblical faith. That's an Israelite faith. An Israelite faith doesn't pretend anything. An Israelite faith doesn't try to convince yourself of something or crank out an appearance or try to look pious or try to sound pious, try to appease God with anything. A biblical faith, an Israelite faith, starts with raw honesty. What is real? What is real? It doesn't try to hide from questions and tough facts and, and suppress doubt. It gets real with tough questions and real with hard facts, and it's honest about doubt. And that's where you start, because God wants a real relationship, not a pious looking sort of relationship. And that brings us back to that brings us back to Jesus. On the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you have a strength tester model of faith, you gotta say, Well, Jesus wasn't hitting the certainty bell at that moment, so according to Paul, he must be sinning. I submit to you that something else is going on here. Jesus in this moment is feeling forsaken. He's bearing the sin of the world, and he's bearing the punishment for that sin, which is God withdrawing his protective presence and letting evil to run his course. And so he is, he is, he is experiencing God abandonment here, which is God's wrath, the, 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 the inevitable consequences of sin. And in that moment, he says what is real. Now, it would have been a whole lot nicer, wouldn't it? We would like it if, if, if instead of, why have you forsaken me, if, if Jesus would have said, Oh, Father, I'm, this is really a rough thing I'm going through. But I just know you're going to come through in, in here shortly, and our plan is going to be a smashing success. We, had that, we would, oh, that's Jesus. Even on the cross, he just was stuck in there. He was hitting that certainty bell even, even then. He you know, that would have been more in line with what we might expect. I'm so glad we didn't get that one, though. I'm so glad I got the why have you forsaken me. Because, see, what was unwavering, and Jesus was not the content of his, his belief system in his head. It was a commitment to have a relationship that was absolutely honest with the Father. And this is what he's experiencing, so this is what he says. That's what God's looking for. God wants a people who are willing to wrestle, a people who are willing to wrestle, who are willing to be honest, who are willing to even push back if, if, if that is what's on their heart. 
wants a, he, he wants a relationship with a bride. I mean, some insecure men want brides that, that, that have no personality or brides that just are just compliant and, and, and there's no feistiness, you know. And, no, but see, Jesus is not weak and insecure. Jesus wants a bride who's got sass, a bride who's going to rule with him for crying out loud in the age to come. He wants a bride who, 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 who has a real relationship, and a real relationship is a reciprocal one. It's one that there's give and take. That's the kind of relationship God wants with us. And that implies that sometimes, it's like in a healthy marriage, sometimes you've got to wrestle. <laughs> you know, you've got you to fight things out. That's the way it is. If it's honest, uh, some of the most unhealthy marriages are the ones that look so nice on the outside, but they're rotting on the inside because it's not honest. Everyone's afraid of the truth. No, a real relationship has got to be an honest one. God wants the people who are willing to wrestle with him. And we, we have a testimony throughout history that... The people of telling us, the saints telling us, that some of the greatest blessings come when you're willing to wrestle with God. I found that the greatest growth periods in my life have come, and the greatest moments of revelation have come when I've, when I've gotten totally honest with God and wrestled with God. You find, it's like when you get honest with God, you give God a chance to get honest with you and, and uh, take the relationship to a new level. So I shared this a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, I guess it was, part of this, how when I first became a Christian, I was able to quit all my other, most of my sin stuff, but I could not kick the porn. And for two years, I, I, I struggled with this porn, lived in a house with my dad, and he had porn all over the place, so I, I mean, I'm an 18-year-old kid full of hormones, and I, I, I just kept on falling. And, and so I, I felt like I was getting saved and unsaved all the time. And I finally, after two years, got sick of it. I just couldn't take it any longer, and I quit. I thought, I, I'm hopeless. I'm, I'm lost. I'm going to hell. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't quit this. And I, I talked about how I went out in this church parking lot after a Sunday night service where I usually got resaved. And I was talking with my friend in his parking lot. And what I didn't share much of was that I, in the course of our conversation, I hit a point where I just exploded. I just popped. I barfed. And I barfed on God. What was happening was a lifetime of, of anger, a lifetime of always failing, to dis, always failing to please authorities, a lifetime of never quite being good enough to get the authorities on my side, a lifetime of, of just failure, and the pain of that just burst out. And I swore up, I, I, I was like my father in that moment, and I was, because he was the world's best cursor. He had paragraphs without a single clean word. I just exploded. <laughs> In this vile, vulgar, ungodly rage against God, accusing God of, you stacked the deck, I didn't have a chance. You know, you, you, you took my mom when I was two and you gave me this other blankety-blank lady instead. And, and how do you think that was going to turn out? And then you put me in a house with a father who, who thinks that's normal for, for young men to have porn all around. And, and you give me these horrible ones that I can't control. And I, I, I basically say, I can't stand you and I hate your church and I hate your Bible. And I hate your stupid plan of salvation. And you're a hypocrite because you say you love people, but you really don't love people. What you love are your rules. And people have the, can make the rules and then they're in, but I can't make the rules. And you're the one who made me like this. And I just raged. It was like a Job rage. And that's when I, in frustration, threw my Bible on the hood of my friend's truck. And it flopped open. And I started to read it sarcastically. And the verse I started to read sarcastically was Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And see... The light went on. The light went on. And I read that over and over and over. And finally, I got a picture of God that was not like the 
El Capone picture that I've been trying to appease. See, what was happening there, I believe, is, is that as vile as that was, as ugly as it was, my friend even stepped back like he's thinking that lightning was going to strike me. I was, I was just undone. But see, I, I think, I really believe, I really believe that as I'm cursing up and down, uh, God is saying, thank you, Mr. Boyd. Thank you. Greg, finally, finally you're getting real. and Now we're getting somewhere. He's not enraged by that. He, he applauds that. That's, it's possible that that was the first biblical, that was the first act of faith I'd ever done in my life, biblically understood. Because that was the first time I ever was honest. That was like a holy prayer to God compared to everything else I was doing. Always trying to look a certain way and appease God and have a certain level of certainty and all that stuff. Finally, I got real. And God's saying, now that you got real with me, I, I can get real with you. Honesty brings about honesty. Revelation brings about revelation. And so we just close your eyes here for a second. I want to ask you a question. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us be honest here. Just very quickly, are you honest with God? Is there an area of your life that God wants to wrestle with? Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. And if there is, will you just yield? Just be, don't try to be anything other than than what you are now. Just offer it to God. Will you get honest with God? Is there something that you've been kidding yourself about or kidding God about? Can you hear the God saying, out of complete love for you, will you please stop it? I want a real relationship with you. I don't want this flowery, pious evangelical fluff and stuff. I want real. Will you, be, will you be real? What does he want to wrestle with yet? Are you mad? Be mad. Do you have doubts? Be, be doubting. Maybe there's a sin bondage in your life. And you know God wants to wrestle with you about that. And you just don't want to give that up. Okay, that's real. Give him that. He'll take anything. Start with where you're at. And here it is, I don't, but I don't want to change. But then, just ask him to change your wants. Oh. He makes beautiful things out of dust. Give him your dust. Oh, when we give him our dust, we give him our crap, we give him our vomit, it gives him a chance to make something beautiful out of us. We've got to surrender it makes beautiful things. He's making everything new. He wants to make you new. He's making me new. But we have to just yield. Give him the honest you, the real you. I, as I close in prayer, I, I want to ask the prayer team to come forward here. And if you want have anything to pray about, whether it's pertaining to this message or something else, I encourage you to come forward and just pray with these folks. Or you want to sit for a little bit, if God's working on you, just let him do his work. Just be real. If, you, if you're in a process of being real, just sit there for a little bit. Don't rush things. And I encourage us to do this on a regular basis. Sit and just be. Be the dust you are so that he can then be the God he is who makes beautiful things out of dust. Surrender your dust. Father, thank you, God, for being a God who loves us more than we can ever fathom. And you love us on the cross while we're yet sinners. 
And that gives us freedom to be real. Thank you, God, for being a God who loves people more than right beliefs and loves people more than holy behavior. You love us in the midst of all our errors, all of our failings, all of our pain. So Holy Spirit, help us to feel safe just offering it up to you. The real us to the real you. Honesty, however ugly. We offer it to you. As we leave here, I pray, God, that you'd be reminding us to be a a people who are honest, a people of truth. The word truth means uncovered. Uncover everything. And pour your love in us, pour your love through us, and use us as conduits of love to all we come in contact with this week in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Love you.